Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm glad I'm not at the airport. Oh yeah, it's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Major, major issues. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we want to say we're, uh, this is going to be a little bit different episode this time. Yeah, we're introducing a new concept for our listeners. Woo! Yeah, we're very excited. I hope you, our listeners will be as excited about it. So from now on, every time there's a major historical event related to a political figure in the history of Lebanon that happened in the same week we are recording, we will be dedicating the podcast episode to this specific figure. Schedule permitting, of course. So don't get angry if if we don't cover your favorite thing. You know, sometimes other things, you know, intervene. So this week will mark the 36th anniversary of the assassination of Bashir Ismail, uh, the founder of the Lebanese forces and Lebanon's president. Very major and very controversial figure in the history of Lebanon. So this episode, as the title suggests, will be talking about Bashir Ismail and future episodes will hopefully be talking about other major figures like Rafiq Hariri, Kamal Jumlat and other people we will be announcing in the future. But first, we we, we still have to cover the news. The news, yeah. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, we had this major systems failure at the airport. And uh, I I should mention, we're recording this a little bit earlier than we usually do. Uh, We're recording this uh, late Friday evening. And and this just happened within the past like 20 hours or something. Uh, And so I guess late Thursday night, early Friday morning, there was a baggage system that failed. And apparently passengers who had checked in got trapped in the check-in area and they were just trapped there for hours without food or water which is like i don't i don't quite this is this is this is a developing you know story i don't quite understand how that happens how do you not get water to people uh but apparently this happened and i mean it's it's a huge problem of course we we've been covering this whole airport fiasco of way too many uh passengers going through it uh busting the capacity uh, it, you know, it's the airport just wasn't designed to handle this many people, and there have been major problems already. Uh, this is the biggest one so far, though. It's so ridiculous that I'm reading a lot of social media posts suggesting that it's some kind of conspiracy. It's that ridiculous <laughs> situation. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, and there's no solution in sight. Uh, but regardless, uh, Hariri did convene a meeting today, and so we'll we'll see if something happens. We'll we'll keep you posted. Maybe this will be lead to accelerating the uh, airport expansion project. Which might you be are, happening with this. You are very optimistic, my friend. <laughs> uh, also, last week, just a quick update. Uh, we, we covered the UNRWA issue where the U.S. cut uh, its aid, like $300 million per year, cut it completely. Uh, so on Monday of last week, the UNRWA school, schools did open. They did open, but they only have enough funding for the month of September. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to happen next month, literally. These kids are going to school for now, but everything is up in the air. Uh, on to my favorite topic. We what a- is that? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we actually had a lot going on in, in cabinet formation this week. Like the, the biggest development so far, I think, in, in cabinet uh, formation and the whole saga of cabinet formation happened this week. On Monday, Saad Hariri met with Jiran Basile, the leader of the Free Patriotic Movement, and then right afterwards went up to Babda to meet with Aoun. And so I was I, I was genuinely excited. Like I was like, oh my God, this might be it. Uh, for the first time, I thought maybe this is it. And and just so you know, the way that this works is when a when a government is about to be announced, the prime minister, of course, is going to go up and meet with the president and Babda, and then everybody's eyes are going to be on Speaker Nabi Birri because if he heads up to Babda as well, then you know, 
oh, th- this is the real deal. Maybe this is going to happen. So on Monday, we were all watching. We were just waiting to hear any news about the movement of Nabi Berri to see if he was going to head up to Babda. In the end, he didn't go. <laughs> Apparently, Alan just completely rejected. Hariri, uh, you know, gave forward like a new formula for cabinet formation, and Aun rejected it just immediately afterwards. Why? Basically. What was that suggestion about? Well, I mean, we don't know for sure. Uh, and, and, and official statements tended to downplay any sort of disagreement. But if you, uh, like a, a report came out in al a couple of days later that basically said that Aoun's reservations were basically the entire thing. <laughs> you know, Aoun had uh, apparently, Hariri had suggested giving the justice ministry portfolio to the Lebanese forces. Uh, and Aoun just totally rejected that. He said, according to the al report, he said, you know, this is going to be for me. I want uh, the current justice minister, my man, Salim Jraisati, uh, in, in, in that portfolio, in that uh, ministry. Wait, uh, so after Basil's meeting, according to al Hariri came up with this deal that Lebanese forces would take justice ministry and then, and then Aoun refused it. According to the report, yeah. So there yeah. is some kind. It seems there's some kind of discrepancy between what Aoun is standing for or demanding and what Basile is asking for or compromising. Right. Which is, so, uh, if this report is to be believed, then it means that Aoun aren't it isn't necessarily on the same page as Basile one hundred percent, and that Aoun is not. You know, some people have suggested that oh, Basile is you know pulling all the strings and he's in control of of what Aoun is doing. Well, no, that doesn't seem to be the case if this report is accurate. So because of all of this, people are forecasting now gloom and doom. Uh, I've, I've heard people say, oh, it's, there's not going to be a government until, you know, the end of the year or early 2019, which, I mean, we're already at, we're pretty far into the process, right? Uh, we have now had, as of Monday, 111 days with no government, 109 days since Hariri was uh, designated to form a government. Uh, so we're, we're, we're pretty far in, like, I... I still maintain that we uh, are in the golden time for making a deal. Like I think this, the next month, like September, this is the this is the time for a deal to be made. And I'm I'm optimistic for I guess structural reasons. Like Lebanon's economy is in a very precarious situation still, even to this day. Even though oil prices have gone up, and therefore uh, there should be more dollars flowing in through remittances from the Gulf, the economy is still it still faces a whole lot of challenges and it could go dangerously off the rails. And, and politicians know this. Also, in, in order to counteract all of this, uh, the whole Paris 4 thing and uh, the, the capital investment program needs a government for it to happen. Politicians also know this. And, and also, you know, neither Aoun nor Hariri want to be seen as weak. And the longer this crisis goes on, the more feckless both of them appear to everyone. I agree. Totally. So, I mean, I, I'm still optimistic. I'd, like, nothing's for sure. And it seems for sure we at least have, you know, a little escalation ahead, uh, you know, before some sort of re- resolution. But I, d- I still think that, like, everything is in place for a possible deal to be made. Now, whether that is a permanent government or an interim one is another question. But everything's in place for some sort of deal to be made to have a fully empowered government by the end of the month or early next month. Uh, also, just a quick note on that. Hariri is going to be headed next week to The Hague to attend uh, the, the closing arguments of the STL, the Special Tribunal for, for Lebanon, which is charging people with, with the assassination uh, of his father. 
so he's going to be out of town next week. Uh, that'll be a big deal. Also, Alan uh, will be traveling next week as well. And speaking of travels, we also had other political travels this week. Uh, four different ministers went to Damascus for the, the, the international fair that they have every year or usually have every year. During the Civil War there, it stopped for about five years. But last year, it started up again. And uh, we had, I think, three ministers go last year. This year, a fourth minister went. And, and this, is, this is a big deal, right? Because Lebanese-Syrian relations are not uh, are, are a big question right now, whether uh, there will be a full normalization of ties or not, or whether that depends on a political solution or potentially the removal of Bashar al-Assad, which does not seem to be uh, in in any of the possible scenarios of the way that a war would end at this point, right? Of course, but the ministers are part of uh, political groups that are aligned with Syria, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hussein uh, al-Hash Hassan, uh, Hezbollah, Yusuf Anyanos, uh, Merida movement. Aziz Aitir from Amal, and uh, one more, right? Avedis Gidanian, the uh, Tashnak. Okay. Uh, also, we had Abbas Ibrahim, the head of general security, go. So we had actually five really, really big officials going to Damascus this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, w- it was interesting that uh, Hussein al-Hajj Hassan, he was the first one to get there. And he, uh, <laughs> according to the National News Agency, he met with the economy minister of Syria, and he tried to push for the opening of this uh, Nasib uh, crossing between Syria and Jordan. Now, this, this is a big border crossing. It's vital to Lebanese economic interests, right? Because it's sort of like the gateway for Lebanese products to get to Jordan and then on to the Gulf. If you can't uh, transport like fruits and vegetables, for instance, by truck, it, it's too expensive to fly them. Uh, I, I think like by sea takes too long. So really by truck for a lot of things is, is the only way you can do you can do it. And this has been closed since like 2015. But in July, the, the Syrian army uh, retook the border crossing. And so it's a big question. Well, is this going to be open or not? Lebanon obviously really wants it to be open. And Hassan Hash Hassan tried to push for that. But despite Hezbollah and uh, Damascus being on the same page on a lot of things, the, the, the economy minister said, basically said, well, we don't really see any reason that it should be open at this point. Wow. So it seems like they're waiting for um, some kind of uh, interesting reward in, in return for opening the border. Right, right, right. That's interesting. And uh, high-ranking officials and ministers weren't the only ones going to Syria this week. Uh, we also had the return of 541 refugees. Uh, and this is a really uh, big operation. It, it happened nationwide in places all, all over the country. I think Tripoli, Sheba, Nabatiye, uh, even here in Burj Hamoud, I think. We had refugees gathering here and, and then going out through uh, both the Masna uh, border crossing on the, way, on the road to Damascus and the uh, Abudiye crossing in the north. Uh, so it was a really big operation. An- another really big thing that happened this week with refugees is that Hezbollah announced that it had more than a thousand names that it had collected and and cleared with the authorities in Damascus to return that it was submitting then to Lebanese general security. This is the first time that Hezbollah has taken such an active role in refugee returns. Uh, and so I think this is really important because this, this, this means uh, this is something that pretends more more uh, involvement from the party. Yeah, and they're saying in coordination with general security, so it's like a formal thing happening, right? So Hezbollah is, no, is, is claiming some kind of an official role. Okay, so last thing 
I just want to mention really quickly, because we are the Lebanese Politics Podcast, uh, Parliament's actually been working. They're in extraordinary session right now mm-hmm. uh, because there is no government. Constitutionally, when there is no government uh, or no fully empowered government, then automatically Parliament's in session. Now, there haven't been general assemblies yet, but what Nabi Berri did was he... Uh, it, He's called joint committees. These are, these are basically, you get together a bunch of committees at the same time, and it's usually done for one of two reasons, either to speed legislation along or to, uh, if different committees report back differently on a certain law or proposal, to get them together and figure out and work out the, the kinks, work out uh, whatever differences the two committees have. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's the former. So there is you know, something like eight or nine laws that that they wanted to look at. And so he has uh, called a bunch of these committees together. They've been meeting for, you know, uh, I think the past month or two in in various sessions. And so the committee has looked at a lot of these bills and they've actually passed uh, bills on decentralizing solid waste management, the .lb domain, the internet domain, transparency in oil and gas. Those that passed just this week. Uh, and Adnan Dahar, the Secretary General of Parliament, uh, told my colleague Timur Asari uh, at the Daily Star, there's a fourth, but he couldn't remember it. Uh, <laughs> um, so they've, and they've got like another four or five of these laws to go, according to Eli Fersli, who is the deputy speaker. And, and that includes uh, legalization of cannabis, of which there are two proposals, one from Amal and one from the Lebanese forces. Mm-hmm. Do we know the difference between them or not yet? Uh, well, yeah, the AML wants a regime-like uh, centralized oh, yeah. state body. The LF wants it to be more privatized, okay. basically. So that's going to go through this. And, and once the once these joint committees get through all of these bills, then the idea is to have a general session of parliament where all these bills can then be debated and passed into law, right? And it looks like that's going to happen sometime in October, according to Eli Fersli. I think it's interesting that it's happening in October, though, because that's when Parliament's actual session starts, October 16th this mm-hmm. year. Parliament meets in two regular sessions per year, uh, like their, their fall-winter one is about to start up. And in the fall-winter one, in the October session, October to the end of the year, the first order of business is the budget. Constitutionally, they can't do anything, anything at all, until they pass a budget. So if they want to get these laws done, uh, laws finished, they really do need to get them done, get them through the joint committees, and then get them passed in a general session of parliament before October 16th. It would be great to have some legislation actually happening in the parliament. Well, it's I mean, been if, a while. It's, if, it's, if it's good legislation, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, we are going to keep watching this. Uh, of course, other people like LCPS also uh, keep tabs on this. I know the Daily Star has been keeping closer tabs on this, but we will bring the latest developments to you as well. But I think now we need to talk about Bashir Jamail. Yeah, right? let's do this. So let's start first by giving um, a very general introduction. So Bashir Ismail was the founder of the Lebanese forces, which was then transformed into the current party that we know that exists in Lebanon with 15 MPs. But he was known, he came to fame as a military commander and then became the president of Lebanon. He was elected president. He was not actually into office when he was assassinated three weeks after his election on uh, 14 September 1982. But let's give some background on who this guy is, right? So Bashir Ismail was born in 1947 in Ashrafi, the Christian uh, neighborhood of Beirut, in East Beirut. 
he studied law and politics at USG, the University of San Joseph in Beirut. In the late uh, 60s, early 70s, he was an active student with the Falange Party, with the Kata'ab Party, which his father Pierre had formed. He became active with Kata'ab both as a student activist as well as military trainee. So by late 60s, he was involved in military training with the military wing of the Kata'ab, and he was rising up the ranks. So like by late 60s, we're talking about 20 years old. Yeah, he's uh, he yeah. was really young um, when he claimed the first like military responsibility. He was head of unit in the Kata'ab Regulatory Forces, KRF. And the KRF was like the main uh, military wing of the Kata'ab. And he was rising in these in the ranks. Um, then he became the leader of KRF in 1976. So when the civil war started in 1975, Bashir was already a military leader in Kata'ab. And uh, the event that started the civil war, actually, the bus massacre in Ayn Rimmani, where 27 people, including Palestinian refugees and Lebanese people, uh, were coming back from the Telezatar camp, Telezatar Palestinian camp, where uh, an event was taking place, and they were uh, they um, passed near a church in Ain Rimmani. There was an ambush, and militants related to Kata'ab fired at the bus, killing most of the people in there. This, uh, which happened on 13 April 1975, is considered the event that actually started the civil war. So Jamail's link to this specific event hasn't been like proven, but it's known that he was actually the main mobilizer of the militiamen on that day and it was on the emotional background of another clash that happened with the PLO militia in the same day which uh, provoked the attacks in Hain Um and according to Karim Bakhradouni who was a, a Kata'ab official for a very long time uh, Bashir Jmail confessed to him that he ordered this operation um, based on his emotional provocation uh, Bashir Jmail, he became eventually the main commander of the Christian militia in Lebanon. And how that happened is that uh, first there was the creation of the Lebanese Front. So there were two sides in the Lebanese civil war uh, when the war erupted. There was the Lebanese National Movement, which was a coalition of leftist parties with pro-Palestinian parties. The main figure in that coalition was Kamal Jumlat. On the other hand, we had the, uh, Walid's father. Walid's right? father, exactly. And the founder of the Progressive Socialist Party. On the other hand, we had the Lebanese Front, which was a coalition of right-wing um, Christian political parties, um, mainly led by three people, Kamil Shamoun and um, Suleiman Frangiyi, the founder of the Marada movement, and Pierre Jmail, the founder of Kata'ab. So the Lebanese Front was a political coalition. But with the eruption of civil war, um, we had the creation of a military wing for this coalition called the Joint Command Council of the Lebanese Forces. And Bashir Ismail was elected uh, to lead this military wing. So at that point, he became the de facto leader of the biggest Christian militia. So basically, all of these all all of these Christian parties had associated militias, right? The Kamel exactly. Shalon had his party, the National Liberal Party, but that also had like an, an armed wing, right? Tigers, right? Yeah. And so all of these all of these armed uh, wings of different factions came together under a, sort of a unified, quasi-unified command at this point, right? Definitely. This is what they were. They were like, they were brigades in the first place. Marada was a brigade and what is now beca- has now become the Lebanese forces was the Kata'ab part of this joint command force. But they, they still had some kind of autonomy within um, this uh, joint force. But Bashir Jmail was leading it and he was a Kata'ab person. And Dani Shamoun was kind of his assistant because the second major, most major 
military force was the tigers of the NLP. So this is when Bashir Jamail started rose as a as a military figure, and he was very charismatic. He mobilized thousands of people, probably like tens of thousands of people, to join these armed forces. And he was not really interested in purely the political side of it. He saw them probably as one project. So many people were speculating that Bashir Jamail would be using the military wing to take over his father's party. But instead, what he really did was mobilize everyone in the military side. And then by default, this is what rules in civil war. And he became the official and most major political figure in no time. And I, I think it's important to to note here just why this logic existed, that these Christian parties had to come together. And it, it wasn't just uh, political. In, in fact, like it, was a, it wasn't so much top down as it was bottom up in a lot of ways, right? Because we have in 1976, the attack uh, on Talzatar, which was planned by all of these different factions, uh, basically by the young guys, right? Yeah. All these young commanders and carried out. And it was uh, successful, but it, it, they lost so many people as well. They really, they, they realized, oh, well, you know, we, if we work together uh, and, and really create a more unified stru- uh, structure here with the Lebanese forces, then we, will, we can get better uh, and we can see better results. Instead of all of these different factions, you know, defending their own little islands, uh, you know, their little fiefdoms uh, of Christian communities or whatever, what if we all unify, then we'll get better results. And it makes sense, right? Because also geographically speaking, uh, the battles in 1976 were between uh, the Christian areas, which is East Beirut and everything north of Beirut mostly, and the Palestinian camps where PLO the Palestinian Liberation Organization, led by Yasser Arafat, had its major military presence. So the camps were the main sites of wars, the the Quarantina camp, the Tal Zatar camp, etc. And these were seen as uh, as if they were like a belt around East Beirut, which gave kind of this project that you're talking about a lot of uh, legitimacy among the people of Ashrafiyye and of East Beirut, who became later the main fuel for this whole war. Right. So Bashir Jamil gained his credibility um, as a leader in this fight against the Palestinian forces. But another major fight he had was against the Syrians. Because uh, Syria entered Lebanon in 1976 based on the request of Christian leaders, actually. Because they saw this as the only way to counter the advances of the PLO and the leftists. So they requested Syria to intervene. And then when Syria actually intervened, it didn't... It didn't keep up to their expectations in terms of suppressing the militiamen in West Beirut um, or taking the side of the Lebanese front. Uh, Instead, what happened was a lot of tensions. And this led to major clashes between uh, the Syrian forces and the Arab deterrent forces that entered in 1976 and the Christian militias. And these tensions are what led to what's known as the Hundred Day War, Harb al-Mi'atiyum. And they started, uh, or they took their most explicit manifestation in 1978 with the clashes between a breakaway faction of the Lebanese armed forces called the Army of Free Lebanon and the Arab deterrent forces in Fayadiyye near the the breakaway faction's headquarters. And this is when Kata'ab joined the fight uh, military. And this is when the Syrians started bombarding East Beirut very heavily. And they imposed a siege on East Beirut. And this is kind of what gave the Lebanese resistance tag of the Lebanese forces, which is always used by the Lebanese forces, 
more credibility because there is an occupying force. It's not. It's no longer the Palestinians who are kind of refugees, but also a, th- a military threat for like Christians of, in Lebanon. Then it's, it's not like a, a regular army invading the country. But for the Syrians, it was clear. It was a regular army. It was way more powerful than anyone here, and it was setting a siege around Ashrafi and East Beirut. So yeah, the story is full. Right. Yeah. You're you're besieged. And the war um, continued for a while. As you said, it's a 100-day war. It continued till October that year. And um, there were two battles in Sodika Square and another in downtown Beirut that were kind of um, iconic ones because the Syrians had taken over Burj al-Mur, the tower, uh, the famous tower in Beirut, and the Rizq building in, um, in near Ashrafiyya. For those of you who have not been to Beirut, Burj al-Mur is, is still there today. It, it's just this hollowed-out building. The, the army occupies it now, but it's, it's huge. It's something like, I don't know, 20, 30 stories. Uh, and, and it provided a very, very good vantage point during the Civil War. For uh, snipers. <laughs> for snipers. And anybody, if you wanted to like look out over it, it overlooks downtown, uh, for instance, uh, so it, it's still standing today, just sort of like one of these, you know, totems to things that happened, things that went wrong in, in Lebanon's past. So the period that followed this phase of um, of the war was mostly about Jmail consolidating his control over the Christian militias and specifically over Marada and the Tigers, which we have already mentioned. So if there were three pillars for this Lebanese front, Bashir Jwail was making sure that only one of them actually makes the decisions. There were some real tensions with both of these sides. First with Marada, the tensions were because of Kata'ab um, moving up north where Marada is based in Zgharta in North Lebanon. According to um, many stories, it's based on Marada's request because they were military weak and required assistance. But then it turned into some kind of a... Uh, struggle over taking control of Christian populations there. And taking control of like the port and Shikha and, and the industrial areas up there, because if you own them, then you can tax them and then you can buy more arms for your armed wing. And then you're more powerful within the uh, within that coalition, right? Definitely. And Jamail knew that there was value, a lot of value in that. He tried to open a party branch in Zgharta, where the <laughs> Frangii family comes from. Uh, and this was a very, very sensitive thing to do. And this is usually told as the, the background for the story of the Eden massacre, which is basically when the party representative in Zgharta, the Kata'a party representative in Zgharta, was assassinated by people associated with the Marada brigades. Uh, Bashir Jmail asked his troops to go to Zgharta and kidnap, like arrest those responsible for the assassination. The LF story is that he did not know that Tony Frangii, the son of Sleiman Frangii, uh, the leader of the Marada movement, and the Zaim back then. The story goes that he did not know that Tony Frangii was there. Bashir didn't know. Bashir, yeah. Okay. But the Frangii family says that he knew, and this was the purpose, to kill the only um, adult son of... Yeah, President Frangii, his son, yeah. And what happened is that Tony Frangii, who was the military leader for Marada, his wife and his three-year-old daughter were all killed um, in the attacks uh, on the Frangii residence, and also a lot of uh, Marada militiamen. And this was a very major breaking point for... um, Yeah, this is a wild escalation. Absolutely insane. Very wild. You don't go and 
and kill the Zion's kid. Exactly. And uh, it's important to note here that the two Lebanese forces figures connected to this, these attacks were Samir Jaja, the current leader of the Lebanese forces, and Elih Bay'a, the head of the Kata'ab intelligence back then. Also a major force who was assa- a figure who was, assa- was assassinated later. Yeah, and, and there we should know that there are conflicting stories as to whether Ali Hobea and uh, Samir Jaja were directly involved or not. But those two names definitely are often associated with uh, with the massacre. Yes, exactly. And the reason why we have Slimen Frangi leading the Marada movement now is that he was not there at the time of the massacre. So his sister Jihan died, but he survived because he was not there. And this is how... He kind of continued the political powerhouse. If- right, right. So the, the current Suleiman Frangia that we all know uh, and love, uh, the head of the Merida movement now. And love. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's the son of Tony, who was killed in the massacre. And Tony is the son of Suleiman, the president of Lebanon from like 70 to 76. So it was Suleiman, Tony, Suleiman, and, th- and then Tony, the, the new parliamentarian who was just elected, right? Exactly. This is the story of the Frangie family in 20 seconds. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> You're welcome. And then the other major clash happened with the Shamoun family, as we said. Uh, Jamal's forces attacked the barracks of uh, the Shamoun um, militia, the Tigers, in Safra, north of Beirut. And they killed a lot of people. And this was kind of the end of the actual militia for the Shamoun family. And the reason was that Dani Shamoun, the actual leader of Tigers, was more hardline than his father, Kamil Shamoun, who kind of wanted his militia to dissolve into the, the, the Lebanese forces um, because they were weak and because they could not at all confront the Lebanese forces and for other reasons maybe. But we know that this cla- kind of tension was happening inside the family and led to the militia dissolving. There was a, a, an attempt to revive it later, but it was not very successful. So really right, right here, what we have is a concerted attempt uh, during these years from like 78 to 80 for Bashir to consolidate power, right, and take out his rivals. So th- this was um, certainly a a period of consolidation of power for Bashir, right, between 78 and 80, basically going out and very actively taking on your your allies, but also your, uh, your opponents within the Christian community, uh, your, your rivals within the Christian community, and just taking them on uh, with basically brute force and, and winning. Yeah. I think Bashir knew that if he doesn't at least rule over all Maronites, then he cannot be the kind of leader that he wants to be. He cannot rule uh, Lebanon or at least lead its Christians if he cannot control the Maronites. And something that's interesting that came of this as well is that he did become sort of like the, the uncontested leader of the Maronites. Yeah, and this is why we're talking about him. And nobody else has done that. No one has done that since. Exactly. He is a major figure because of that. And maybe the only person who comes close to him in some way is Michel Aoun, but he's way more controversial because there were all of the Lebanese forces against him by the time he was uh, attacked by the Syrians. So we had Samir Jaja actually opposing him militarily. It was nothing close to what Bashir Jmail had, for sure. Right, right, right. And by then also, it's not only a consolidation of military power, it's also the establishment of the Lebanese forces as a Kazai state in terms of having economic structures, having like almost diplomatic relations with other governments. So it was a, a, a period of time where the Lebanese forces was, had a policy for tariffs on the port, it was uh, regulating prices, it was taking, collecting taxes, distributing uh, a lot of basic necessities, etc. So it was really when they were at their largest power and they were most established um, as a provider as well as 
uh, defender, quote-unquote, of the communities that they come from. And this is perhaps the sign that Bashir Jmail knew that he was building something way larger than just um, a militia. He was planning something bigger and he was uh, establishing himself some real political credibility, especially that he later announced that he's running for president and he was elected president. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and, and it's important to note, so after he established uh, this control over the, the Maronite community, he started to look internationally as well, right? And and he started to develop ties with Israel. Yeah, we don't know when this started for sure, but we know that p- perhaps around 78, even before he consolidated his power completely over the military, the military wing of the Lebanese Front, he had already been in direct contact with the Israelis, many secret visits um, by Israeli commanders and Mossad agents to make sure that the Lebanese forces receives the weapons that it needs to carry out the fights against the PLO. And um, when he talked about the relationship with the Israelis, he didn't really deny it. He said that if some areas and villages are taking military aid from Israel, it's because they would accept military aid from anyone if they feel threatened. Right. Their their enemies were the Palestinians, uh, Kamal Jumblat, uh, and, and the Syrians, depending on when you're talking about it, right? Exactly. So to him, it was uh, totally justifiable, uh, the alliance with Israel. But according to what we know, this was a really deep alliance, especially military-wise, and there was coordination of moves and of attacks. And um, this got especially controversial in 1982. So Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982. It invaded everything from Beirut to the southern borders. It started with originally a plan to occupy only 40 kilometers and establish a safe area without PLO presence. But then, according to some people like Elih Bayo, Bashir Jmail asked the Israelis to go all the way to Beirut so that they can actually kick out PLO from Lebanon and not only from South Lebanon. And it, and it worked. And it worked, exactly. Yeah. In uh, August 1982, PLO, uh, were, PLO militiamen were expelled from Lebanon in boats and in other, uh, through other ways um, to, to, to Tunisia and other countries. PLO was kind of abolished as a major political force and military force in Lebanon. We, we have obviously a couple of thousands of fi- fighters that remain in the country and uh, hid in the camps, etc. But this is something that uh, was not even comparable to their military presence before that. So Israel's invasion of Beirut in 1982 was the only way that Bashir Jmail could claim the right to be president of Lebanon. And this is what happened indeed. The, the same day, right, that, 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 the Palestinians, that the deal was signed for the Palestinians to leave, uh, Bashir Jmail... Uh, got 62 MPs together in Fayadiye overlooking Beirut, and they elected him president. And I think this is really fascinating because, it, like, there's all sorts of things. He 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 had to supposedly bribe people, uh, threaten people, all sorts of things uh, because there was a concerted effort to deny him quorum, according to uh, Fawaz Trabulsi's uh, history of Lebanon. Uh, he said that they flew in. Uh, I think it's Joseph Scaff from his hospital in Paris to just so that he could come and vote for Bashir Jamal uh, Bashir Jamal it was a on a, a private plane it was yeah. a one time opportunity that had to be seized and and he did it and he did it exactly he became president he did not actually claim office but he was president elect for 3 weeks before he was assassinated and, and by the way like we still count him as a president He's still considered, you know, even though he was never took office, people still consider him. When you list the presidents of Lebanon, he comes up. Yeah. You, you still list him. Yeah. 
And uh, the assassination was an interesting event because by the time that he was elected, according to um, his entourage, he had kind of made new enemies. He was confronting the Israelis um, by refusing to sign a peace treaty with the Israelis uh, and saying that as a leader of the country, he has to uh, make sure that this only takes place if there's a consensus among different groups. This is the official story from the Kataab on Lebanese forces. And this kind of explains why some people accuse Israel of being behind the, or kind of facilitating the assassination of Ismail. Right, but that's not who... Uh... It's typically blame. Typically, blame goes to the SSMP, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. And Habib Shartouni specifically. Habib Shartouni was an SMP guy, SSMP guy who had family living in the same building of the Kata'ab headquarters. So what happened is that on 14 September 1982, he put set these bombs in the apartment above the Kata'ab offices. And uh, he knew when Bashir arrived, he left the building and did the operation. And then he confessed and he said... I did this and um, my assistant or the person who commanded me actually and facilitated the operation was Nabil Alam. And and the fallout from this also was just massive, massive. We The, the Sabra and Shatila massacres were a direct consequence of this assassination uh, and probably just the... The thing that stands out, if you know anything about the Lebanese Civil War, you probably have heard uh, of this massive massacre uh, that, that was carried out by the Lebanese forces uh, after, with Israeli help uh, after the assassination. Exactly. And there was a huge backlash against it uh, internationally. Also in Israel, Sharon was condemned with a lot of protests inside, this, inside the parliament, but also in the streets. Um, being called like the worst kind of war, war criminal for doing this. And Sharon was saying, we didn't do it. Like we had absolutely nothing to do with it. These were Lebanese people killing Palestinian and other Lebanese people. And why are you blaming us? But in fact, the Israelis were surrounding the camp. They had flares in the sky to light up the whole thing to make, to kind of allow this thing to happen. It was clearly a thing that was coordinated uh, at least on a very basic level. So, but back here in Lebanon, um, clearly Bashir was very, very strongly and well-loved by a whole lot of people. He did, like like you mentioned, he did something that nobody else was able to do. He was able to claim the mantle of Maronite leadership in a way nobody has done since. Nobody. But on the other hand, we have these things like, you know, massacres and, uh, you know, uh, in Ehden or or after the assassination, the, the response to the assassination. And, and that produces a lot of other Lebanese people have very strong negative reactions to Bashir, right? Totally. I think Bashir Ismail is maybe the only major historical figure in Lebanon that some people think is the worst person in the history of Lebanon. Other people think is the best. And I'm, I'm really not exaggerating in any sense. Uh, Bashir Ismail's uh, posters and his like graffiti of his face, his face are all over Ashrafi and a lot of places in Lebanon because he is considered, as you're saying, as the only Christian leader who was able to bring different Christian factions together and lead this Christian project for a Lebanese state. But it was not only a Christian thing. So yes, he understood, uh, according to his supporters, he understood the threat on Lebanon's Christian and the Christians of the Middle East. And he understood the role, strategic role of Lebanese Christians in this area of the world. And he called Lebanese Christians in Lebanon the region's saints and its devils. So we can be doing the worst of wars, but we will be the only ones who can allow actual peace and freedom 
in this part of the world. This was his Christianist kind of perspective. But maybe the, the actual rhetoric used for legitimization of Bashir's legacy is uh, the state part, the state building part. Because Bashir's whole rhetoric was about, not only about Christians, but actually building a Lebanese state free from any kind of foreign intervention. And this, and coupled with his nationalism and very nationalist rhetoric, gives him this uh, patriotic credibility. Because he was against the Syrians, he was against the Palestinians, and at the end, he was saying very critical things of the Israelis before he was assassinated. So he kind of, you know, he's always given this credit of opposing anyone coming to control Lebanon. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that he would often speak in Amie, in, in the language of the street, not, not, in, not in French, not in Fusha or anything like that. Uh, you know, very like he, he was Lebanese to the degree that like it was even in his speech who he was, right? Definitely. And he was he used the language of the streets even when it's a bit controversial. Like I was listening to a speech today where he said something like absolutely blasphemous on all religious standards. Right. He said, like, neither the Syrians nor the Palestinians nor the gods of their gods can stand in our way. You know, he was very um, I mean, he grew up in Ashrafi and he knew how to mobilize. So, yeah, he was a military leader. He spoke the language of the people, but he also had a big vision for the Lebanese state and how to build it and how to move forward, especially after he was elected president, even though it was only a matter of a couple of weeks. But his rhetoric changed. He was he became more moderate. He started speaking of like consensus and pluralism and started talking only about uh, Palestinian militiamen rather than Palestinians in general. Uh, so uh, this rhetoric changed to kind of match his s- self-claimed um, representation of the Lebanese state agenda. I don't think there's any Christian historical figure in Lebanon that has as much um, emotional attachment by a lot of people that is like coupled with like uh, admiration, political and also like military and in terms of personality, because it's also very, very charismatic. If you listen to his speeches, you understand why people were very excited. He was very charismatic. And he knew how to mobilize these people, these young men specifically. So yeah, um, this is what his supporters say, the supporters of his legacy. On the other hand, you have maybe more people who completely dislike Bashir Jmail, who think of him as um, a very cruel person, first for being responsible for many massacres and many battles that were very deadly, especially against Palestinians in the refugee camps. He was also one of the main triggers of the Lebanese civil war, as we said, uh, his military action, and I remember if he actually commanded it or not, we don't know, but he was very linked to it, led to the eruption of the civil war, uh, the deadliest event in the history of Lebanon uh, since Lebanon's creation. You had the biggest, maybe, crime of his life considered by, um, as considered by the left uh, and the pro-Palestinian parties and groups, is that he was an ally of Israel, right? Like, you can be as cruel as you want, but you cannot be an ally of Israel. This is like the biggest mistake for a lot of people. And this is what, why Habib Shartouni was proud of his assassination. He, he said, I executed him because he sold Lebanon to Israel. So he was very proud of it. And people who hate Bashir Ismail are actually also happy that this happened. A lot of them are because they could not imagine that a person who was in bed with Israel would be leading Lebanon in the future and being president. Yeah, and so when you when you think about if you draw back a little bit, a little bit, and you think about well, why why can't Lebanese people just like all get along and you know hold hands and sing kumbaya? You have to remember this this event happened in 1982, 
uh, and to this day, that means that means it's a living memory, right? And a lot of people have a very, very an emotional attachment to the personality of Bashir Jamayev. But for like half of them, it is very intensely white hot positive, and for the other half, it is like white hot hatred. And and there there literally can't be agreement over him. Yeah, definitely. And another layer to me that is very very important is that Bashir Jamal was uh, one of the main reasons that the anti-Palestinian racist rhetoric was completely normalized in political in political discourse, especially among Christian communities. Because Bashir Jamal was not shy at all in in using very strong language against Palestinians. And I'm just going to quote him very briefly here. Once he was talking to his supporters and he said. We are still fighting, quote, so that your children don't live in Natal Zatar abroad, so that they don't live like the Palestinian refugees who are going around the world's countries and ruining these countries, drinking from their wells and then stoning the wells. So he did not really make the distinction between Palestinian refugees and the militias um, right, right. Th- that come from these communities. And also when he talked about the Syrians, he always used this word barbaric. Every time he's talking about the Syrians, he said, Humil uh, barbar, and we are like the civilized people. So uh, this is the battle between freedom and barbarism, etc. So this rhetoric that exists in Lebanon, that's very widespread in Lebanon, with a lot of hatred for Syrian people and for Palestinian people, cannot be disconnected at all from this figure because he made it the official rhetoric of the Christian forces and the Christian um, of Christian politics for a while. Yeah, and we see the effects of that to this day. Definitely. Right? Yeah. So it was certainly a complicated legacy with a lot of layers. Um, and uh, we know that it's impossible that people of both sides kind of agree on one story about Bashir Jmail, who he was, or what his significance is. At least not when such emotions are involved, right? Exactly. Yeah. Definitely not. But um, I think it's uh, it's important to cover, always cover these both sides of stories. Otherwise, we have never... We can never understand a lot of Lebanese people, I think, a lot of people that I know can never understand the other side of the issue and in such sensitive. And, and this is also another reason like we, we've um, spoken like privately about this before, but just like what, why isn't there like a unified history curriculum in Lebanon that, that covers the civil war? This is exactly why, you know, I mean, we, we might need to do like a, a full podcast on this in the future, actually, because yeah. it, like there there are like weird consequences that you wouldn't think about normally that, that, that happened just because of, of, of all of the craziness that went on during the civil war. Definitely. Definitely. It's not an easy task at all to, uh, to create one story that satisfies everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, this is it for, for this episode of the podcast. Please let us know if you want to hear more about the more, like more stories about Lebanese historical figures uh, we're very happy to do more of them, but uh, that's all we have for today. So until next week, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.